You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. But you know, good and camp. You're listening to the and campaign church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. What's up, Pastor Chris? What's going on? Oh, everything, man. It is, uh, you know, a little bit busy, but that is how it should be. How are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, I'm good, man. I mean, I know you got a lot going on. You got the the church, you got the the, the family, you got the campaign. Uh, so you're doing a lot of good work, and we appreciate you, brother. But I'm doing pretty good myself. Uh, one of the one of the reasons for that is that it's football season. Uh, technically, the, the the college football season started last week. Uh, Illinois actually beat Nebraska. So anybody who has a heart for uh, Illini football should feel some kind of way about that. But it starts in earnest this weekend. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. Big football fan. Now, I know y'all know that I jump around a little bit, you know, when it comes to basketball. I don't really jump around too much when it comes to football. So I'm about the Bears. I'm about the Commodores. I have a few other uh, teams that I follow. Uh, but I'm really excited for football season, which brings up a very interesting story, Chris. And, I, and tell me if you heard about this before. But there's a school, or maybe it's not a school, um, called Bishop Sycamore. And they were on ESPN, I believe it was this weekend, playing in a national on national television on what people thought was a high school football game. Well, come to find out, Bishop Sycamore, which said it was like an online high school, is not a high school at all. It actually doesn't exist. In fact, they fooled ESPN into thinking they, they were a high school with high school players when they really had like a 30-year-old quarterback and a bunch of guys who had gone to JUCO who were playing against high schoolers on television. Now, Chris, I don't know about you, but this is completely crazy to me. I've heard some crazy stories about maybe one person trying to pull off this type of fraud. In fact, when I was in school, we had a guy try to join the football team who was never actually enrolled at the school, who never actually was accepted into the school. And he was literally coming to practices, practicing with the ch- team, trying to get on the team. And the coaches were like, dude, we've, we have no record of you, bro. We don't have, have any record that you go here. And it was crazy because he made up this story. And so everybody was all mad, like, man, they're not even giving him a chance. Come to find out, man, the brother didn't even go to the school. So I've experienced that on a smaller level with one individual, but how in the world do you get a whole football team to try to pull off this kind of fraud? And maybe we could say they did pull off the fraud since ESPN apparently fell for it. And if you listen to the commentary of the game, the announcer's like, you know, there's not much information on this team, but we know that they're trying to get, you know, people into education in a different way and all this other stuff come to find out it was just all fake, man. So I'm, just in a, a state of disbelief. I don't know how all this even happens. Chris, what are your thoughts on it? And do you have any any additional details? Is there anything else out there? Man, I, I haven't seen much more detail. I will say that this is, uh, you know, it, it's a, a sort of a shame because there is, you know, this sort of emerging uh, online charter school and online private school sort of environment, which I think is, uh, you know, it's good for uh, education and innovation, but this is the kind of stuff that you have to watch for because how in the world do you get this sort of a mass conspiracy? I mean, and be so effective with it. They were on ESPN. So I don't know, like do the, cause I, I saw that they had uh, some games previously, like they had just played on Friday, according to the record, but was that a real record? Do they actually play high schoolers like every week? Have they been doing it since 2009 or whatever? Like, this is like, 
a very strange thing. It's crazy and, and potentially serious, I guess, because they are playing against minors. Yeah. Right. Like some of these, you know, some of these guys could be kids. If you're an adult committing fraud to play a sport where a minor could get hurt, that actually could be serious. Right. Like, it, it, you know, it's not necessarily any small thing. So I don't know. We'll keep we'll continue to watch it. Somebody suggested that there needs to be a 30 uh, for 30 on this because uh, these details have to come out. Man. It might be. I will say both of the games they played, at least the two, the the one that was on ESPN and the one that they supposedly played on Friday, they got creamed in both of the games. So they're good at conspiracy. They're not that great at football, it does seem. Bro, they got blown out. Now, uh, in their defense, if if you can defend any of this, one of the teams they played was IMG. I think IMG is ranked number two, one or two in the nation. So they're they're really good. But these, you know, some of these dudes are like, 25, 30 playing against kids. So, yeah, they, they took an L for that, man. So we, we just wanted to point that out, man. Maybe y'all can give us some some more uh, details on what's going on there. But that is a crazy story. Of course, we have more serious things to talk about. So as usual, AnCamp, uh, grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And this next subject, as I mentioned, is very serious. So we want to transition into that in the right way. (sighs) Well, I've said this before, Ann Camp, and I think it bears repeating. Uh, This is one of those truths we all need to remind ourselves of from time to time to make sure we never forget. And here it is. When we're in a state of rage, we're easily manipulated and less likely to seek and achieve righteous objectives. If we're constantly in a state of rage, always outraged, then we're constantly at risk of being manipulated and acting out of character and outside the bounds of scripture. This is why Chris and I over and over again tell you to turn off cable news and to be on your guard and to be skeptical of any leader who is always trying to make you irate. Who's always trying to infuriate you and uh, and and to use those strong emotions to tie them to some political cause. Whether you think that cause is is a legitimate cause or an illegitimate cause, whether this is a Republican or a Democrat, a black person or a white leader, it doesn't matter. Be careful with that stuff. You have to understand if your social action is primarily motivated by rage, then your public witness is not gospel centered. You see, rage is the fuel for the mob mentality. It's what often drives opposition-centered politics, and Christians can't afford to succumb to this culture of rage and rage-baiting. We can even put this into historical context. If you look at African Americans and what they were going through in the civil rights era, we in large part still were not in a constant state of rage. And I say that not because I was there. I say that because I've had many conversations with my elders. I've heard what they had to say about what was going on at that time. And I know their general disposition. And it wasn't because they were apathetic or numb or unable to grasp the severity and gravity of the situation. They took that posture because rage is counterproductive. Because it clouds our vision. It obscures the image of God in others and compromises our judgment. When we're seeing red, we're not seeing the Imago Day, and we're prone to be malicious and vengeful. And that's exactly what some people in politics want us to be because it's to their advantage. Sobriety is a much better approach, which doesn't mean that we won't ever be angry which doesn't mean that we uh, won't be indignant, which doesn't mean that we won't be passionate and tenacious in our response to wrongdoing. But it does mean that we must also be righteous and judicious. And to be that in a very divisive time takes faith, moral imagination and critical thinking. 
Christians should never go into the public square without those things. And here's why. Because you can't represent the people you claim to care about, the people that you say you're advocating for. You can't represent them well and do them justice when you're enraged. You can't represent others well when your primary motivator is rage. Again, this often means rejecting, calling out, holding accountable those who stoke rage for their own purposes. And unfortunately, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, Chris will express his own. That now applies to Congressman Madison Cawthorn. Uh, Congressman Cawthorn represents North Carolina's 11th district, which I believe is the Asheville area. And he's the youngest member of Congress at 26 years old. He has an interesting story, a very unique story, because he was left partially paralyzed after a car accident about eight years ago. And he won a stunning election in 2020 after being endorsed by folks like President Trump and Ted Cruz. But unfortunately, on Sunday, Cawthorn made what I think is one of the most irresponsible and really dangerous comments that I've heard come out of the mouth of an American politician in my lifetime. And from what I can tell, he did it for his own interest, which apparently includes keeping conservatives enraged. And here's what he says. You can be the judge yourself. Here's a statement. If our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, it's going to lead to one place. And that's bloodshed. And I tell you, as much as I'm willing to defend our liberty at all costs, there's nothing that I would dread doing more than having to pick up arms against fellow Americans. And the way that we can have recourse against that is if we all passionately demand that we have election security in all 50 states. Wow. Now, now, Camp, I want you to note that this statement is completely founded on Trump's big lie of a stolen election. It's entirely based on something That simply did not happen after conservative judge, after court and court here and court there said this just didn't happen. Now, I've been saying this for a long time. I've said this about Trump. I've said this about the Georgia Democrats when it comes to our last governor's election. Unless you were able to present a a compelling evidence that persuaded a court to overturn an election then you cannot say the election was stolen. You can't say you won if the official results don't support that statement. It undermines democracy. It undermines trust in a system that generally works. For the sake of democracy, stop undermining our election system. Yes, we have some serious work to do when it comes to voter rights. You know that the Ann campaign talks about that all the time. You know that we're not just talking about it. We're working to fix it. There's no doubt about it. But we still have to watch our words and we still cannot claim we won or that something was stolen unless we can compel a court that that's the case. This is not small. This is very important. But that's only part of the problem with Cawthorn's statement. So, Chris, let's break down the statement a little bit. Here's the first thing he says. If our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, it's going to lead to one place. That's bloodshed. What we see here in camp is Congressman Cawthorn is making a prediction He's making a prediction that if things don't change, that if things stay the way they are right now with our system, because Trump lost, Americans will die if we don't pursue the lie. Then he goes on to basically basically justify it. 
He basically says that it's necessary for the sake of liberty and that he would reluctantly use deadly force against fellow Americans, potentially and reluctantly use deadly force against fellow Americans if policies don't change. This is someone representing the people of the United States of America. Making such a reckless and irresponsible statement. Now, let me say this. The whole transcript, I haven't seen that it's been released. We looked for it. I haven't seen the entire transcript. I haven't seen a video of everything he said during this this uh, uh, talk that he was giving. And let me say what his let me give you what his spokesman, because we want to be fair. This is what his spokesman had to say about him. This is how his folks spokesman defended his comments. He says this in his comments, Congressman Cawthorn clearly is clearly advocating for violence not to occur over election integrity questions. He he fears others would erroneously choose that route and strongly states that election integrity uh, issues should be resolved peacefully and never through violence. Well, whoever his spokesman is, let me say this. None of that is clear in that quote. Cawthorn said, I'm willing to defend liberty at all costs. There's nothing I would dread more than having to pick up arms against fellow Americans. He said he's basically saying that our current election system would compel him. If it doesn't change, he would be compelled to pick up arms. He does not take that option off the table. He does not say that would be an erroneous conclusion or result. If things stayed the same, that is completely reckless and irresponsible and, and, and something has to be done about it. You cannot plant an idea like that in people's heads and then hide your hands by suggesting that you'd be reluctant to take that approach after you've already essentially said it was just it would be justified if things don't change. If the current system stays the way the way that it is, what somebody could take from what you said was that it would, might be necessary to raise arms against other Americans. What he's trying to do now, what his spokesmen are trying to do, that's like, you know, it's like it's like someone going to their coworkers and saying, if the boss keeps underpaying us, then I would understand if someone poisoned his lunch, which is in the refrigerator on the second floor. Now, I would hate that that, that if that were to happen. But that's what's eventually going to happen. That's pretty much what he said, because he's manipulating rage and justifying malicious actions or even murderous actions. How in the world does this come out of the mouth of a serious elected official, of a serious public servant that men, women and children in this country could be killed based on a lie that you could you have not shown to be true at all? This is the height of irresponsibility, the height of recklessness. Go ahead, Chris. So, I mean, I I agree that this is uh, completely reckless. Uh, it's something that should not be done. And uh, I agree with a lot of what, what Justin, what you just said. Uh, I think that, unfortunately, we are in a moment... Uh, in our society, where all of the incentives are pushing people in in this direction, uh, members of Congress, I think, have a role to play in legislation, yes, but also in leadership. I do not think that it is inconsequential what an elected member of the United States Congress says in public. I think that that. Uh, it, it does carry weight. People listen to it, especially people uh, in your district, especially people who hear uh, this type of foolishness amplified on uh, cable news, which I'm sure cable news is all too happy to amplify, um, you know, this this kind of thing. Uh, and, and because of that, the incentives uh, push in this direction. I mean, we're we're in the place right now where legislative maps are being redrawn all over the country, both parties are 
gerrymandering maps so that you have these hyper concentrated districts uh, so that, you know, once you get through a primary, you can't lose a general. If, if it's a, a red district is going to go to the Republicans, if it's a blue district is going to go uh, to the Democrats and there are very few uh, swing districts. Uh, so that, you know, sort of encourages or, or at least incentivizes, I won't say encourages, but incentivizes uh, people to sort of play to the sort of most extreme uh, parts of their party and, and even to the to the most extreme way of looking at things uh, from from their purview. This is where all the incentives, uh, at, at least at that level, are moving in that direction. And I think because of that, there's a significant responsibility uh, on believers right now and an important job for those of us uh, who really care about the health of our democracy, uh, who really care about the future of our country. Uh, and that is to build up a grassroots resistance to this type of foolishness. Um, we need a whole movement of people uh, and I still believe, Justin, that this is possible to do uh, in America. I really believe it deeply in my heart uh, that it's possible. But we, we need a movement of folks who have revived hearts, um, but not just revived hearts, like really revived and renewed and trained minds, right? So, so that we don't let our brains fail us when we hear somebody stand up and say something so dishonest, right? Um, you know, first off, as you said, the idea that the election was stolen is dishonest because we have uh, an electoral system uh, that, that I think is, is already pretty clever. And then we have uh, a judicial system that is able to uh, look at, you know, cases or accusations of voter fraud uh, and adjudicate that. And this system is set up. It looked at this particular case and uh, decided that it was not stolen and all those types of things are great. But, but listen, even if you still think that the election was stolen, which again, it was not, but even if you think that, it is still dishonest to say that the only thing you can do in response to that is, quote, take up arms against a fellow American. That is absolutely not the only way that you can deal with difficulty, struggle, even atrocity in our country. There's way more than one option available to you. And probably the, the worst and the last option that anybody should even mention I think this is the trouble with what the congressman said. The last thing that anybody should even mention is the idea of picking up arms against a fellow American. That, to me, is not a game. Uh, it is not something that any person should ever say uh, casually. And it is certainly not something uh, that a seated member of the United States Congress should be saying. But I think that the only thing that can begin to turn the tide uh, in our political discourse will be a grassroots movement of people on both sides of the aisle, because we're talking about a person on one side of the aisle who did it this time. Uh, but we have all these incentives to, to play to the most outrageous and foolish things. And, and this guy just pushed the envelope again. Uh, but I think that the best resistance to that is going to be a grassroots movement of people on both sides of the aisle who just absolutely refuse to be stirred by this foolishness. And if we do get stirred, it is to, to strongly repudiate that kind of talk. Yeah. I mean, Chris, rage can become an addiction. And what we see happening now is people providing more and more of, of what feeds that addiction and being more and more extreme with it. Uh, you're exactly right. The biggest problem here is presenting, picking up arms against other Americans 
as a viable option, as as a choice based on the fact that you didn't win an election. When I hear when I when I read what what he was saying, I hear if we don't if if we don't change the policies and we don't win next time, somebody's going to die. And that's just completely unacceptable. We cannot in any way support that kind of message and anyone who would provide or bring that kind of message has no business in public office. This is a guy who was very just reckless with his words. I mean, something else he said, it's hard to tell if it was in the same talk or in a different talk. Something else he said was he basically called the uh, folks who were arrested uh, on the January 6th, um, on January 6th at the Capitol, he's calling them political hostages and said something about we have to bust them out. Then somebody said, well, when are we going back to the Capitol? And he said something about, well, we're working on that. Of course, they said that's not what he meant. But this is just someone who's maybe just not. And, and there are some great folks who can be great politicians at that age. But maybe he's not in a place where he needs to be in office. We have to be very careful who we vote for. And the people who voted for Mr. Cawthorn should be the main ones, the primary ones, checking him on these words because they're completely unacceptable. Chris, I'll let you end this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that you you should have, you know, the folks who voted for Representative Cawthorn checking him on these words. Um, but but again, I, I think that you also need every person that you possibly can, you know, using the platforms that we have, whether you got a Twitter with 25 people on it, uh, you know, people you talk to on a day-to-day basis, write a letter to the editor at some of these large uh, papers. Uh, you know, you, you see all kind of foolishness and comments all the time. You can get in the comments. It's got to get to a place of grassroots resistance where People are like, we don't want to hear that. We're not going to applaud that. We're, we're going to continue to tune out from cable news if this is the only thing uh, that, that you can amplify uh, to the point where it, it begins to, the incentive begins to change. Uh, and again, like what you said, Justin, is, is so key. Rage can become an addiction. And so what we're talking about is 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 a real discipline of the mind because it is very easy to fall into that trap, especially if you are a person. And this is why I don't want to come off here uh, as completely uh, 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 disconnected from the idea that there are people. I, I just had one tweet with somebody this uh, past weekend who I love dearly, um, who is still pretty convinced that there was funny business uh, in the last presidential election. Um, And so I I don't want to come off as if like you don't have some thoughts in the back of your mind and you can have that and that's fine. But it's, it's one thing to have, you know, a bad taste in your mouth from an electoral process. It's another thing to continue assert to assert that the election was stolen uh, and it is something even further, and I think completely unacceptable, to suggest that as a result of whatever you think happened in the election, that we should take up arms against each other. Like, that's pretty unacceptable. And somehow, like, to me, like, this is the new resistance, right? Like, those of us who will band together and actually fight for a healthier approach to political discourse. Yeah, I mean, and and I didn't mean to dismiss that. Uh, Obviously, that I believe in that. That's kind of what the I think in a way you describe the end campaign and some of the groups that we work with, man. So it is very important. That organizing side is very important. Uh, We'll take a break and we'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It's me, Justin Gibney, and my, my good friend, Pastor Christopher Butler, also known as the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. All right, Chris. Um, 
you've seen this. I think most of the people we're, we're probably talking to in this audience have, have heard this. It's been reported that the U.S. left about $85 billion worth of military equipment in Afghanistan. And the understanding is that that equipment is presently in the control of the Taliban. Now, this includes Humvees, uh, transport aircrafts, Black Hawk helicopters, choppers, rifles, drones, and just cash. Now, my understanding is, Chris, that we've demanded all these things back and we, we are expecting or at least hoping that the Taliban will return those things to them. And there, there may be consequences tied to them not doing that. The problem is we don't really even know. We don't have a, a really accurate list of all the stuff that we even left there. So we're asking for something that we don't even know exactly, you know, the amounts that they they even have, which makes it very difficult. And, and it says something not only about and I want to be clear about this, too. It says something not only about how we are leaving, but it says something about the order with which we were conducting ourselves while we were there this whole time. That we don't have, it doesn't seem very accurate records of all that they have that belongs to us, that we paid for with hardworking taxpayers' money. We have no idea. $85 billion just, just over there. So, so the the administration is saying that they are asking for that stuff back. They are putting out there a little bit lower number, but we can generally say that there's a lot of money and military equipment that was left over there. Now According to MIT's technology review, the Taliban also has U.S. military biometric devices over there, which are used to collect data such as iris scans, fingerprints and facial images. Some people fear that that those that that data might be used to identify Afghans who helped America uh, while we were over there. Now, some experts with MIT are saying that the chances of that are, are a, a little slimmer than a lot of people think because their ac access to that data is limited and it's actually stored remotely on a secure server. So they don't think that the Taliban is going to have access to a lot of that information. However, some of the same experts are saying that the greater risk is from uh Afghan government databases containing sensitive personal information that could be used to identify millions of people who are still in Afghanistan. Uh, some of this, some of these folks are military people. So one of the quotes from this story uh, says that uh, this database, this data contains details on the end of, on individuals' military specialty and career trajectory, as well as sensitive re relational data such as the names of their father uncles, grandfathers, as well as the names of two tribal elders per recruit who served as guarantors uh, for their enlistment. This turns what was a simple digital catalog into something far more dangerous, according to uh, Ranjit Singh, a postdoctoral scholar at the nonprofit research group uh, Data and Society, who studies data infrastructure and public policy. He calls it a sort of genealogy of community connections that is putting all of these people at risk. Chris, this is this is very serious business. On, on one hand, we have all the military stuff that's being used. Now, the Taliban has said that they will not use this stuff uh, to target retribution. Right. They're not going to come at people. And try to get back at them for helping, you know, the United States over the 20 years. Now, some people would say that, hey, they have incentive not to do this. It would obviously draw international pressure that they don't want, international scrutiny that they don't want. But I think we also have to say that history suggests that their general posture or, more, or mode of operation would say that they would do something like this. And we have to question whether or not the folks at the top have control of the folks uh, that are on the ground enough to make sure they're not doing things like this. I think it's something to worry about. Chris, how do you take this and, and, and how do we move forward from here? I mean, what, what's your take on this, uh, on what was left there from the data to the equipment? 
Yeah. So I think that uh, there are two primary messages for me uh, that emerge out of this. And the first, probably the most important, um, is it, it points to the idea of what what we lost in this 20 years engagement uh, in Afghanistan. And we're talking about the equipment. Uh, but, you know, the, the first thing that I always think about are the, uh, the, the, the high, high number of lives that were lost uh, in Afghanistan over 20 years. You know, almost 2,500 servicemen and women, almost 4,000 contractors, 1,200 NATO forces, 50,000 Afghan civilians, 508 workers, 75 journalists, um, lives lost. Then we leave all of this equipment uh, in the in the hands of the Taliban, and and I think there are some uh, legitimate recourse uh, that we have, you know, to make sure that the uh, the Taliban doesn't do horrible things with this equipment that they return it. Um, we certainly have that kind of recourse, and, and and that has to be accounted for. But at the same time. Every sentence uh, that starts with the Taliban said, uh, you know, we have to take with a, a large, large grain of salt. Um, and so that, that first thing is just about like, we shouldn't have been there that long. We shouldn't have been investing that much uh, American resource uh, in, this, this, uh, in this, this 20 year war. But then the second message that, you know, I, I, I love being able to talk about this on the end campaign podcast, because a lot of what I'm hearing and, and, and you know, I'll, I'll just say that a lot of what I'm hearing uh, really tries to push into the either or category. But I think you look at we shouldn't have been there that long, but then you also have to ask questions about how this thing was planned, the actual withdrawal itself uh, and were there things that could have been done better to make sure that we are not leaving that much equipment? Um, and especially the biometric stuff, because that's not just equipment. That is information on people who may be left uh, in Afghanistan. And if if the Taliban knows that you aided the the, the Americans and the NATO forces and everybody over the course of the 20 years, uh, they're probably not happy about that. And if they then know where you live, who your family is, I mean, down to what fruits and vegetables you like to eat, and they can pick that up so quickly just by a scan of your pupils or getting your fingerprints, um, I think that that compromises the safety of people who we're trying to help us do, you know, whatever it is that we were over there trying to do, uh, which seems a little bit bogus. So I, I sort of reject the notion that you either have to be completely against um, the w withdrawal uh, and and completely for the war or fall on the, 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 the polar opposite of this. I think that these types of things, when you start unpacking something like what we're talking about now, like this equipment, this biometric uh, data, we begin to see that it's not really either or, it's both in. We never should have been in Afghanistan this long. We never should have invested so much uh, American life and treasure uh, into this war. Uh, but then... We might have wanted it to be slightly more conscientious, and, and I am not, I will say this uh, for anybody who's listening, I am not a military logistics uh, expert, uh, but I don't think that I have to be a military logistics expert to be able to say we should at least look at this and see, talk to some military logistics experts and see were there actually things that we could have done to do this a little bit better than uh, than what we did, because it seems like to me, from my non-military logistics expert uh, chair, it seems a little bogus to some people who did who did us a solid for twenty years. Yeah, I mean, it, we are in the cheap seats to some extent, but it seems a little sloppy, to say yeah. the least. Um, and I take it you're not saying that we should have never been in Afghanistan after nine eleven. You're saying we shouldn't have stayed there. That we long. shouldn't have stayed there nearly. 
nearly that long. I mean, not even not even close. It, it very very early in the process, there was opportunity to be out of there, and we should have. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, Biden's taking a big L on this. I mean, his numbers have really dropped. Uh, the media has been very hard on him. Uh, they're going to have to find a way out of this, and he's really going to have to step up the messaging because even the messaging surrounding getting out just wasn't strong messaging. And I don't know if strong messaging would have been enough, but uh, this is really hurting them. And, and like I said, it's you know we can argue about whether how long they should have been there. I think we most people, a lot of people, agree that twenty years was a long time. I really think that, you know, the transition, if you want to call it that, it seems like from the cheap seats that it could have been better, that it seems a little bit sloppy, because uh, even if you couldn't do all these things, explain that, explain yeah. exactly what's going on until, you, you know, you wait until everybody finds out. And then it's like, well, uh, 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 and that's just not going very well for the administration. So they got hey, this is on them. They're going to have to figure a way out. And hopefully that way out. Uh, preserves as many lives as possible because we don't need to lose any more people. But we got something else to talk about when it comes to uh, Biden and the Biden administration. But we will be back in a quick second on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Chris, um, you might call me jaded, but at this point, I'm going to be really honest. At this point, it doesn't endear me. It actually does nothing for me to hear a politician say, and this is interesting. I want want your commentary on this because you're actually running for office, but it does nothing for me to hear a politician or a candidate say that they're a Christian or quote scripture. Like that doesn't endear me. That doesn't make me think anything specifically about you. Because I think we have on too many occasions seen politicians just use that as an identifier, as a way of identifying with certain groups or talking about things that you hold close to you but not really necessarily representing those things or in this case, not using the Bible right. I mean, Chris, I'm almost at the point where I I would rather not have politicians or candidates quote scripture at all because it's so misused. We saw Trump misuse it. We saw so many other folks misuse scripture, misapply scripture that I don't see what value that it brings other than to make some people feel like you can relate to them when you really aren't. Um, The misuses of scripture are just rampant and it it happened again. Right. So we have Biden giving a speech on something we were just talking about, which, which was Afghanistan. And he says this. The American military has been answering, answering for a long time. Here I am, Lord, send me. Biden said in allusion to Isaiah chapter six, verse eight. Each of these women and men of our armed forces are the heirs of that tradition of sacrifice, (sighs) of volunteering to go into harm's way to risk everything, not for glory, not for profit, but to defend what we love and the people we love. End quote. Lord, send me. 
Now, Chris, I'll tell you real, I'll tell you off top. This is that's one of my favorite passages. Um, you, you, you'll see, see it in some of my profiles and all that. I mean, I think that has a lot to do with what the and campaign is in the public square for. But let me be clear. Uncle Sam is not the Lord, nor is he the savior. Isaiah wasn't being sent out on a military mission from the state. He received a commission from God. Um, and for it to be used in this way was not only sloppy, but a way d- uh, almost, I don't want to say irreverent, but dishonoring. Um, we just have to watch how we use scripture. And we just had this kind of, I mean, what was it, two weeks ago when uh, somebody down in Texas misused some other scripture talking about election and she was talking about political elections. And that's not even what it was talking about. This is just completely out of context. It, it's a bad interpretation of scripture. Now, it seems to me this is this is why Obama had somebody like Michael Ware in the White House as an advisor. When you have somebody like Michael Ware in the White House as an advisor, this step, this stuff doesn't happen. And maybe he should be in this administration as well, because you got to have. And that's not to say nobody knows better in the administration, but you got to have people say, no, don't do this. This is not helpful. To you, this is not helpful to the conversation. I just want politicians and candidates not to feel compelled to use Bible Bible verses in your addresses, because I think it's been so overused and so misused that to a lot of people like myself, we can do without you doing that because I want to hear it used in the right way. I want to hear it from the heart when you really mean it. And in politics, man, it's just hard to know when that's happening or not. But, Chris, I'll pass it to you. man. Yeah, I mean, so I would say two things. One, I'm. I'm never surprised when I hear politicians misuse scripture because like Bible reading and Bible literacy is a crisis in the church, right? The the sad part that we we may not even want to say, but I'm going to go ahead and say it because you know, this is something that is important to me is that there are far too many Christians who would not even know that, you know, that Isaiah 6 text was being taken out of context. Um, You know, hopefully more people would know, make your call in the election, sure, is not talking about democratic elections. But, you know, when you start talking about, you know, Old Testament prophets, it's probably plenty of people in the church. You start looking at Barna's numbers on, you know, how Bible reading outside of uh, Sunday services are is is going down. I mean, I think that the last number that I saw was something like twenty five percent. Only twenty five percent of of Christians, professing Christians, report that they read their Bible outside of church service. So uh, this this Bible literacy is a big issue uh, in the church, and so it doesn't surprise me when I hear politicians use it poorly. You actually touched on the thing that is most problematic for me in hearing the president of the United States use a scripture so badly out of context, especially one that I think is, is, I mean, it is one of my favorite is one of your favorite, but I think that's because it's sort of an important uh, scripture. I mean, we're talking Isaiah and, you know, uh, uh, pretty major prophet and his calling that kind of stuff. So it's a pretty major thing. And, and what I look at here actually ties back to the discussion that we we're just having about Afghanistan, because it says to me, do you really not have a person who, when I'm going to make a speech honoring soldiers who just lost their lives in a war zone, and I'm going to quote the Bible. You don't have a person who like looks it over and says, Mr. President, let me give you another verse. Um, it's, it's not because the president is not a skilled Bible exegete. It's that the administration doesn't have a process to keep the president from looking bad 
in front of a population of people, one just in general, makes, I mean, it doesn't look great. And then this is like a population of folks who we need to be trying to like keep on our side and, and not offend. It's, it's a level of attention to detail to me. I mean, I'll be like, I'll go behind the scenes of like Chris Butler for a second. Right. So uh, I have a person on my congressional campaign who happened to have studied international relations uh, at Stanford. And so when I get the uh, the topics from you, Justin, uh, about what we're going to talk about on the podcast, and it's something about international relations, I'll like talk to this person and be like, here's what I'm thinking. Does that sound right? You know, help me say this the right way and, and think through this so that I have the, the least chance to make like a complete fool of myself when I'm saying something on a public platform. Now, I am a small-time preacher from uh, the west side of Chicago running for a congressional office on a podcast, which, you know, we had a nice podcast here, but it ain't the president's platform. This is the president of the United States. You would just think that somebody would look it over. Like you'd have a person who would look it over and say, that's not the, the right verse for you, Mr. President. Let me give you another scripture to quote. So for me, it's not the, the fact that, that Joe Biden doesn't know the Bible as, as well as I would hope that a lot of Christians would know their Bibles a lot better. Is that there's like these operational things that you just wish were a little bit tighter. Yeah, I'm with you on that, man. Um, and, and so that's something that all Christians need. I mean, maybe you are a Christian that feels uh, like you connect with somebody who uses Bible verses and says they're a Christian. I would ask you to question that a little bit um, and, and just focus on the substance, um, because we know politicians will use whatever they can. No offense to uh, to connect with people, uh, even when it's used out of context, even when it's used, even when it's misused. So that's that on that, man. This is another episode of the Church Politics Podcast. Man, we hope. That, go ahead. I just want to interject. Read your Bible. I'm going to do all of Bible. my pastor friends a solid. Read your Bible so that you can know when they are not using the Bible in the right context. Can't argue with that. And folks, this is another episode of the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and Pastor Christopher Butler. We appreciate all that y'all do. If you enjoy what you're hearing, don't hesitate to Leave uh, comments on, you know, whether it's on Spotify, uh, give us a, a review or, you know, rate us on iTunes, whatever. Just show some support. Tell some folks at your church about us or go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com uh, slash church politics and give. Become a part of the movement. Uh, we've got some awesome stuff coming forward in the next few weeks um, that we'll be announcing. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, but as always, we thank you. And ANCAMP, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic witness in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politics with the boldness and, the, and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, ANCAMP. Take care. Well, I'll let you. Somebody say kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord.